Now, there are also regulations against other type of animal fights, for example, cockfighting. And a first-time conviction for running a cockfight is a gross misdemeanor that carries up to 364 days in jail. A second-time offense is a Category E felony with up to four years in state prison. And a third-time offense is a Category D felony with up to four years in the state prison. Assault and battery. What's the difference between assault and battery? The difference between assault and battery is that a battery ends up with an actual strike, an actual touching, while an assault does not, right? The assault can take place without even striking another person, right? So let's go to battery. Is there more than one type of battery offense in Nevada? Yes, there are many. There are many common forms of battery, right? For example, first let's start out with simple battery. This is misdemeanor battery. It's a battery constituting domestic violence. It's also a misdemeanor battery. Then you go into some felonies. Battery with a deadly weapon. Battery with substantial bodily harm. Now, those are the types of batteries, right? According to Nevada state law, battery is defined as any willful and unlawful use of force or violence upon the person of another, right? Battery can occur against another person, adult, a minor, or even a protected person or a person over the age of 60. Those are kind of sometimes how they'll classify it. So what are the types of people when I talk about protected class? So those basically involve certain professionals are given this special class. These include the following, right? Police officers, firefighters, correction officers, taxi cab drivers, school employees, judges, health care providers, right? Those are part of a protected class. The penalties increase if you commit a battery against one of those persons. What about a simple battery? Well, a simple battery is defined as any non-consensual harmful contact regardless of the injury involved. So this could involve a push, a spit, even a punch. What is a battery with a deadly weapon? Well, it's pretty simple, right? A battery with a deadly weapon is defined as a non-consensual contact with a person with the use of a deadly weapon or, and this could be like a baseball bat. It could be a knife. It could be a gun. It could be anything used to cause substantial bodily harm. What about battery with substantial bodily harm? Battery with substantial bodily harm is defined as a non-consensual harmful contact that results in the loss of a limb or any other type of permanent disfigurement and results in a serious felony upgrade for the offense. So, I mean, even if you punch somebody, you break their nose, oftentimes a prosecutor will charge it as a battery with substantial bodily harm. Now, what are the penalties for battery? It all depends on what a person is convicted of, right? So if it's a misdemeanor battery, the potential sentence is up to six months in jail. Felony battery, 
up to 10 years in prison depending on some of the ones that I previously spoke about, right? So what are the defenses to an assault, right? So each case is unique, but there are different defenses. They vary, right? Some of the common defenses could include as follows, right? There was no reasonable indication that the actions that the defendant was going to take would be considered offensive, right? So, for example, in the assault context, or you could even say self-defense in assault. I had a situation recently where the alleged victim in the case yelled a racial slur at my client, right? You effing spick, he said. Now, my client went up to that person and said, you know what? If you weren't a woman, I'd kick your ass, right? So the prosecutor charged that person with assault. Is that assault? No. Why? Because the person, the defendant, qualified what he was going to do, right? He said, if you were not a woman, I would kick your ass. She was a woman, therefore he wasn't going to kick her ass. The reasonable apprehension of an immediate battery was not reasonable because he never was going to do it. He qualified the language, right? Some of the same stuff with defenses to a battery, some of the common defenses are going to be self-defense and or a lack of intent, right? So on the self-defense side could be, listen, this person came at me initially and I responded in self-defense. I responded in like kind or with regard to a lack of intent. Let's say there's a situation where you inadvertently touch somebody. You inadvertently shove them. You're walking, you trip, and you shove them. Is there an unconsensual touching? Absolutely. But was there an intent to hit the person? Absolutely not. No battery. Nevada, even as statutes that penalize uh, abuse of show dogs under NRS section 574.107, which makes it a category D felony up to four years in state prison for tampering or interfering with a show dog. Abusing a show dog is a category D felony that carries up to four years in state prison. And if you're convicted for killing a show dog, you're looking at a category C felony with a penalty of up to five years in the state prison. Hector has access to that account. You're going to get yourself in a mess. We run into it all the time. Helping people work through these things. So doing all of that, then you work your debt snowball and work your way back through the inactive accounts and you clear them off by in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, and then you're clear. In most of the time, 25 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar of what they say you owe is going to sound more like about what you originally owed or a little bit less depending on who you're dealing with, what kind of debt it was, and all that kind of thing. 
but they'll settle with you if you offer them cash now. I will send you money this instant on this debit card, this prepaid debit card off to the side, or this checking account off to the side, or I'll send you a a cashier's check overnight and pay the FedEx charges, but do not let them in your account. You'll get messed up and messed over. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the show. precursor or a pre, uh, it has to be the first step a litigant or a defendant takes prior to filing a 2255 motion. Ultimately, they serve the same purpose, but after one is convicted, the first appellate line of attack is a direct appeal. And uh, I would add, by the way, that I did a lot of direct appeal work too, primarily being the voice of the inmate in prison to their assigned or appointed uh, appellate counsel. Uh, so I assisted a, a lot in that context. But what happens is you first need to exhaust your direct appeal um, avenues of attack before you, you file the subsequent 2255 habeas, which is basically the last attempt you can make attacking your conviction. And can you help the audience understand a little bit about the uh, burden that a, that a pro se inmate has to overcome with regard to prevailing on an issue such as ineffective assistance of counsel? Very, very challenging. In fact, you know, it's a funny story because I was known, I, I was very busy, as I mentioned to you in these prisons, because I wasn't a guy who, I wasn't doing it for the money. I, I was many times getting, you know, paid a, a cup of coffee, but what I would tell everyone in prison was that, and, and it would be to the chagrin of many of the jailhouse lawyer competitors of mine, because they were looking to charge real money, is the percentage of success on those type of appeals is no more than one or 2%. It's very, very rare that a person has success on these appeals. And when, I, when we define success, unlike the typical success definition of a jailhouse lawyer who will say, when we get you back into court and you have an evidentiary hearing, that's defined as a success. A success is either at the end of the appeal, after all the appellate avenues have been pursued by both the government and the defendant, there is either a shortening of the sentence or there is a release of the, of the defendant. That is how a success, from my perspective, is defined. So very, very rarely do you see successes. And you said that you did uh, 11 years. How many 2255 petitions would you say that you prepared? Well over 100. And out of the 100, is it, are we to understand then that only one or two got relief? I had two successes. Out of 100. Those were, and those were shortened sentences. Okay. We're not releases. And let's talk about a 2241. What is the, what is the level of your expect, experiences, which is different because on a 2241, as you said, you're challenging the conditions of confinement. Um, let's start with the 
uh, administrative remedy process and what relationship that has to a 2241? In order to file a 2241, or as we can speak about in a moment, a compassionate release motion, there are requirements to exhaust what is called administ internal administrative remedies. An internal administrative remedy is filed through the prison itself by the inmate through a series of forms that are submitted to a, ver a variety of levels in the B Bureau of Prison process. First, there is a filing with the case manager and counselor, followed by a filing with the warden, followed by, if necessary, a filing with the regional office for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and finally, with an attorney for the central office of the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. And that process typically takes three to four months to play out. So after those three to four months, what rights does the person have to begin the 2241 motion? Following exhaustion, which is defined as a conclusion against the inmate by the attorney for the central office, uh, the inmate can move immediately then to file the habeas corpus petition pursuant to uh, 18 U.S.C. section 2241. What is the what is the experience that you have had in prevailing on on administrative remedy very rare once again only in the context really of medical issues where there's an agreement uh typically to send out an inmate for uh private consultation with a private physician outside of the prison that would be my typical request where the inmate felt he wasn't getting uh, a fair shake, if you will, with the, with the uh, health services department in, in the prison and wanted to get a, a professional opinion from outside the prison. I had several successes in that vein. But then, even only then, when this medical condition was very serious. And when a person has other issues in the prison other than constitutional violations, but let's say his he is being harassed by staff members um or he came to work for you we cut our we only had one that's 20 years ago yeah uh yeah you don't even know the difference i mean it's again like you say the debit card can do everything it's real purchasing versus this myth and uh, you can just fall into a trap. You just never know when some emergency happens. If you don't have the baby steps in place and you don't have a real emergency fund in place, Josh, uh, uh, you know, you, you just, it's, it's too much of a temptation to then say, oh, well, I've got it. I'm going to use it. Now you're, now you're behind the, well, the other, the other pieces of data we've got is, is that they, any kind of, non-cash transaction debit credit mm -hmm. apple pay oh yes that's right any of these they're what are called low friction transactions it, when you spend with cash it activates the pain centers of your brain and it doesn't when you do a low friction transaction with plastic and actually credit cards are lower friction because somewhere deep down in your psyche you know you don't have to pay it you don't have to have the money in the account today mm-hmm 
I just got to get my paycheck by the end of the month. Yeah. Or I can pay one of those easy yes. payments. Right. And somewhere down in your psyche, your your intellect tells you that. And so you have a tendency to spend more. And all kinds of different pieces of research showing that. You spend more with credit cards than you do with debit cards. And more with debit cards than you do with cash. Yeah. That's just uh, psychology. Again, because you, it's a psychology of behavior. And it doesn't matter how disciplined you are. Mm. Uh, I'm disciplined. I teach this stuff for a living, and we're on a cruise ship. And of course, they can. There's no money on a cruise ship these days. Back when we used to have cruises, remember those? <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, your door key, your door key will buy anything on the boat. And I find myself buying the kids, you know, six dollar ice cream cones or whatever. Same thing in Disney property. Your door key will work. Oh. It's your it's your own property, and you yeah, can buy the you can buy one of those sixty three dollar raincoats yeah. and not think anything yeah. about it because it rains every afternoon. Disney arranged that. True, and so um, you know, but you just don't you don't realize it emotionally that you're overspending and that you're spending more than you would, even if you're disciplined. I'm pretty dead gum disciplined. I teach this for a living, right? But I get back to the room and I'm like going. Dad gum. And we, you could afford a lot of sixty three dollar. Bought raincoats. some stuff. I can afford it, but yeah. I'm just looking at the bill going, We yeah. bought some stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like swipe, swipe, swipe. Right. And um you know I so, heard you say this once. We were talking about this one time. We we have a mutual friend who posed that one time. We were hanging out at his house and he was literally asking all this and you said the same thing. And it's funny that really wealthy people don't need airplane miles. They don't. Like, <laughs> real wealth. Do they have money? Yeah, they don't <laughs> care. They have their own plane. They don't care about the miles because they go, hey, I think I want to go here tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm really rich. I can do that. <laughs> whole section of the guidelines manual, they have chapter two. In fact, it's the bulk of the guidelines manual, pretty much, uh, that is chapter two. So how do you determine which particular guideline is going to be the Chapter 2 guideline you will use? Well, that's in Guideline 1B1.2. 1 means that you're in Chapter 1 of the Guidelines Manual. B means you're in Part B of Chapter 1. And then 1.2 is the specific guideline there. So obviously I'm now referring you back to Chapter 1. Well, chapter one is probably the most important chapter in the book for correctly applying chapters two, three, four, and then ultimately chapter five. So uh, there are a lot of things going on in chapter one that we will be referring to, uh, particularly this guideline and relevant conduct, which is also back in chapter one. When you're deciding which chapter two guideline you're going to use, you use the one most applicable to the offense of conviction. And again, going back to some of the decisions early on the Sentencing Commission made in writing guidelines, uh, it was like, do we write these guidelines for an offensive conviction system? You know, it's what you're convicted of is going to dictate essentially what the sentence is going to be. Or is it more of a real offense sentencing system? You look at what really went on out there, regardless as to what they're convicted of, and then the sentence would really be driven by that. And the Sentencing Commission really has come up with what we sort of see as a hybrid system. Uh, but that hybrid system begins as an offensive conviction system. What the defendant is convicted of will dictate which Chapter 2 guideline is going to be used. 
in your guidelines manual, back in Appendix A, we have what is called a statutory index. And the statutory index lists most of the codes that the Sentencing Commission sees being violated that result in convictions in the federal court. We have those codes listed. And then we list the Chapter 2 guideline that we think should be the applicable guideline for that offense of conviction. Now, in our scenario, what was our defendant convicted of? What, what statutory section of law? 2113? Okay, and what was the subsection? A and D. Okay. Now, if you go to the Appendix A, you'll see that under 2113A, we have four potential Chapter 2 guidelines listed. You know they're Chapter 2 guidelines because they all begin with the number 2. Now, under 2113D, you see there's just one guideline listed there. And there has to be a decision as to which guideline is the most applicable guideline for your offensive conviction. If you were to look up those guideline sections that are listed back there, those Chapter 2 guideline sections, you would see that they are the guidelines, 2B1.1, larceny guideline, the burglary guideline, the robbery guideline, and the extortion guideline. Those are the four potential guidelines. The Commission says one of these probably will be your applicable guideline for this offensive conviction that we have in our scenario. The reason we have more than one guideline listed under 2113A is that if you read that section of law, 2113A, it says it's against the law to commit larceny or burglary or robbery or extortion involving a bank. So we're not really sure what that guy's convicted of on our end. Now, it's not going to be that complicated for you folks because you all have the charging instrument. The, the information or indictment that the individual has pled guilty to, and that will have the elements of the offense your defendant has pled guilty to. So in that case, you look and see what the defendant was convicted of. So regardless as to what the facts surrounding this offense may look like, your, your concern at this point is what was the defendant convicted of? and say, well, the defendant was convicted of larceny. That's the offense of conviction. I'm reading the elements of 2113A. It's the offense of larceny. Now, it sure looked like a robbery, but that doesn't matter. In choosing the Chapter 2 guideline, you would go to the larceny guideline under that set of facts. Now, having discovered which guideline we're going to use, we go back to Chapter 2 to begin applying that Chapter 2 guideline. I think that you'll find the worksheets are a most helpful way for those of you that have never applied the guidelines before of making sure you don't miss a step in the application of the guidelines. It will send you through the sequential, correct sequential application of the guidelines, keeping you from missing any of the appropriate uh, guidelines or adjustments that need to be considered. Okay, the robbery guideline. Uh, the robbery guideline 2B3.1 is going to be our applicable guideline for this offense conviction in this scenario. The robbery guideline is like, I would say, most of the guidelines in Chapter 2 in that it has a set base offense level. This defendant is going to start at an offense level 20. You've looked at your sentencing table. This guy's down to the number 20 in that left-hand column at this point 
of guidelines application. But that's not the end of the calculations in Chapter 2, because then you have these specific offense characteristics, characteristics that will send you further down the table or, or for sometimes back up the table, depending upon whether it's an aggravating or a mitigating characteristic. You'll see in the robbery guideline, if it's a financial institution or post office, you add to it excess, which would include in this instance, pursuing the internal process that we refer to, uh, but only if you meet those requirements. If you clearly don't meet those requirements, it doesn't make any sense even to pursue the internal process. For instance, if you haven't served 50%, if you just entered prison, you don't have any medical conditions and there are no cases in the prison, I wouldn't waste a lot of time with the internal process. Uh, if you meet one or more of the... Right okay. there. Let's just continue right there. You wouldn't waste time trying to lobby through that Bureau of Prisons. Does that mean you would then turn your attention to going to federal court or you would just not do anything? It would depend on how many other factors you have working in your favor. I was about to say, if you have one or more working in your favor, either a medical condition compromising one's immune system, uh, you are of, of an elderly age and or you've served 50% of more of your time, one or more of those conditions, I would pursue both the compassionate release and the 2241 approaches, once again, because they're filed in two different courts. How about a case like Michael Avenatti, who is, uh, you're familiar with that case? Yes, I am. And Michael Cohn as well. And neither of those people are 60 years old, and neither of those people serve 50% of their time. Both of them are going to home confinement. Very interesting. I was very surprised. But so what, so what I would find in that is that if you don't try, nothing happens. If you try, the odds may be 1%, but you're trying. That's, that's true. Yeah, that is very true. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know that the, the right answer, I think every answer has to be on an individual basis, but it sure is helpful to know that, that people have a resource like you that they can ask these kinds of questions. And we did receive a question from a, from a young woman who's advocating on behalf of her son. Um, she asked, how, how long would it take you to prepare documents that would help her son? or potentially I, help her son? I have prepared a detailed process sheet which, which uh, involves, a, is basically a, a detailed questionnaire, the answers to which provide me with the information in full that I will need to file both a 2241 petition and a compassionate release motion. From the moment I receive that, those answers in full on that process sheet, I can file within one day. Now, that doesn't mean we will, because the process is I will send the documents to the client for review, and the client ultimately will send in the documents, but the documents will be ready for filing within 24 hours. All of the templates for these have been created. Uh, I've done a number of these cases in the last several weeks, and at this point, what changes the document are the specific answers to the questions that we've created in the process sheet. Well, that's very, that's very helpful. I'm sure that'll be very helpful for, for, for any listener. 
And if anybody wants to get a hold of David, I will be very happy to pass along his his contact information. And and David, we'd love to just you know have an ongoing dialogue with you on matters related to uh, you know what your experiences were while going through eleven years in prison. And uh, I want to just thank you for giving us your time this evening. Is there anything you'd like to say to the group? Well, I'd like to also say to the group that I'd like to be back and also keep you all apprised of developments as I hear them from inside the prisons from my current clients who are reporting to me on a regular basis, particularly on this COVID situation, which is so fluid. Uh, There is a lot of very interesting, I would say, but oftentimes disturbing information I'm getting back from the inmates insofar as the lack of testing for staff in particular. And those staff who are many times asymptomatic are are likely to be bringing in, in many instances, the COVID virus to the inmate population. So that's very, very concerning and it continues on an ongoing basis today. So the name of our group is Prison Professors and David clearly is somebody who has gone through 11 years plus in prison is is eminently qualified as a prison professor and just want to uh, um, make it clear that, that, that our role is to help people understand what strategies that they can pursue, but at the end of the day, it's their choice on whether to pursue it or not. Um, my experience of going through 26 years in prison was always to be a a self-advocate and to to try and get the best possible outcome. David, I I, I trust that you feel the same way. I do, Michael, and I I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners this evening. Excellent. So so his name is David. He's part of the Prison Professors team. And if you want to connect with David, please let us know. Um, I'm sure that uh, Justin can connect you and uh, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to learn from somebody who's got a, an immense amount of knowledge, both about the... Another circumstance in which police do not need a warrant to search your home is hot pursuit. This typically involves a scenario where police are chasing someone suspected of criminal activity who then runs into your home or place that you own and the police are able to enter without a warrant in order to pursue that suspect. Compact, sedan, and they just find out when you get there. Right, right. Turo, you get to choose the car, no hidden fees, everything is clear as day. So that was the benefit. So with me, I was driving my, this is how it happened. Justin, new ACO, I got a rental car. I'm like, man, I'm, I don't care what car it is. I got a little small Ford, Ford like the small little, I think it was a Forte, I don't know what it's called. A small car. Right. I had a meeting with Justin Owens, new ACO. I went to Target to go drop, we parked in Target. I went to the car. He hopped in his car. What car? It was S550. I hopped in my, my um, little small Ford. He clowned the heck out of me. Because <laughs> y'all about the same height, too. And he knows how much money I make. Right. <laughs> he knows what I can afford. He was clowning me like, bro, why are you in that car? Right. Like, why does it matter? Right. We just need to get to point A, point B. Nobody cares. Everybody knows I got it. Why does it matter? But he said, he 
grew me so much. On my, on my whole ride home, I was like, man, I'm about to get in the car. <laughs> I'm tired of this, driving this. I'm tired of having to explain myself. <laughs> that's how I ended up getting the testimony. So that's wow. the question. Why would somebody not just um, rent a car from Hertz or Budget or a traditional car mm-hmm. company versus Turo? Because you have more options for nicer cars. Gotcha, gotcha. What about credit checks and credit cards? I know you sometimes... I, there was a point in my life where you're so you say, okay, I'm gonna go get, I'm gonna rent a car, but you never know what they're gonna ask for. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it, you know that yeah. my heart always. You don't know if you're gonna get it. Like, gonna get they it need a credit card. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. with Turo, you don't need to have a credit card. That's another benefit of it. Or the platforms like Turo, even a personal booking. All depends on how somebody wants to run their business, but usually with a traditional, you have to be a certain age, mm-hmm. you have to put it on a certain deposit, deposit certain credit, uh, what else do they need? Sometimes you have to have a flight ticket to prove that you're not a true, local. True, like there's true, true. Of course they do it to protect their business, I understand, yeah. but some people don't have those options, so they need other options to be able to get a car to run out. Gotcha. So, so they really, really Toro. They'll let anybody who has a driver's of license. They, of course, they go do background checks. Of course, there, there's a, 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 a vetting process. Of course, all that, and of course, the car's insured. But it's not as difficult nice, as gotcha. the traditional rental car. Gotcha, gotcha. And you can just find what you like, like right. something nice. Gotcha. That's the key piece. Gotcha. It's options. I got better so, options. So, income potential. Walk me through income potential. Income potential. Depending on what car you have, it always falls around anywhere cash flowing. This is net profit. Cash flowing anywhere from $300 a month to even upwards of what I was making, $3,000 per car. Mm. My Corvette was averaging $1,600. My my Tesla was averaging $2,600. Profit. Profit, 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 profit. This is literally profit. Mm. Um, my my C three hundred it didn't perform as well. It was probably in the the eight hundred dollar range. Mm-hmm. So, all, but, but me, I have my receipts. So I show cash people flows, cash flow. Though. Cash flow, cash flow. So you then compare your cash flow to the amount of time that it takes to manage the operation. So with me, I did it all by myself. I then hired one of my brothers at church to help me out with the check ins and checkouts. But it wasn't labor intensive. I was still able to do my real business, my marketing mm. agency. I was still able to do the things that I really enjoy, going to church, hosting Bible studies, while managing these three cars. Yeah. And I realized that the cars that I had leveraged the marketing deals that I was actually closing. Mm. And I told people, yeah, I own a car rental company, small small fleet, three cars. I got a Corvette, Maserati, C300. They were so amazed at the fact that I was in this business that they weren't even thinking about the marketing no more. They was just signing the deal. Oh, right, tell me right. about the Corvette. <laughs> tell me about that story that you told me. Right. How do I get in this? It was so it was amazing leverage. Where do we? Where do you keep all these cars? All right, all right. This is crazy. That's a good question. So I initially, remember where I was keeping my cars? Target. Yes. Once I went from three, and I turned up. I was parking the cars. I was trying to park the cars at Target. Target um, general manager called me and said, um, this is Matthew, are you the one who has all these cars on my lot? He said, yeah, you, you got to move them. You're ODing right now. I, I, I did the most. I, I <laughs> You're ODing right now. I was getting away with the three cars, but as soon as I tried to bring them all there, 
Then now I was like, all right, I'll move him. Can, can you give me like a week to figure it out? He mm-hmm. said, he was cool. He was super cool. Cool, he'll give you a week. I think it was during, it was, it was, it was during a big weekend where they need, they definitely need the space. Mm-hmm. And now my cars are a big attraction. Everybody was taking pictures. You can see on the cameras, they show me. Everybody was going around the cars, taking pictures near the cars, oh, all that wow. crazy stuff. So I had to figure it out. I had to move all my cars to my apartment. One of my other apartments in Norcross. It was I got a picture of it. All my cars lined up in all the parking spaces. I got away from it for two weeks until they called me and said, You gotta move these cars. <laughs> right. By God's grace. By God's grace. As I was posting every time I got a new car, I posted on my Instagram, like, look, I got another car. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights. And I would work with them on the IDs, like whatever they wanted. Okay. Because those were easy. To make. Cool. So that's good money. You're making a couple, you're getting a couple orders a day, making a couple thousand. Uh, I was a doing day. like one or two orders a month. And okay. then, like I said, I woke up that one morning and I remember I had 20 orders waiting on me and I couldn't believe it. One morning you just had 20 I orders. I had 20 waiting on me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that day distinctively. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I was, was, I was running around the house jumping off the fucking furniture, dude. Were you? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I mean, 20 grand, that's a lot of money for, oh, for, for somebody sure. who doesn't have shit. And for somebody for who's been getting robbed and pouring all their fucking every dollar they've had into this shit for the past two and a half years mm-hmm. and not going anywhere, you know? So yeah. to me, this was victory. This was, you know, I made it. Right. Yeah. So what else are you doing in the meantime besides, I mean, obviously you're just sitting online, like you have your info sitting online for people to order mm-hmm. and there's only so much time you're spending making these cards. What else are you doing? I was doing some online carding. I was okay. doing some uh, some virtual call it virtual carding. I was doing virtual carding. Um, I was still going in stores here and there. Okay. And you know, mind you, I wasn't spending any money at this time either. Cause I had cards. 
Mm. If I needed gas, I would go oh, fucking yeah. fill up with a card at the gas station. If I needed groceries, I would take a card to the grocery store and buy three, four hundred dollars in groceries. You know, so all my money is basically just going in a fucking shoebox in the closet, and I'm not really spending oh. any of it. Yeah. And at this point in time, I had been living off of credit cards, stolen credit cards for probably three and a half years. Like I didn't have a job for three and a half years. I was just using stolen credit cards for everything. Now, where where were you living? Uh, at this point, I was in Coral Springs. Okay. And you uh, pay your rent with the credit cards? Oh, well, I would just go, if, like, when rent time would roll around, I'd go grab a laptop or two laptops. Get cash? Just cash it out, go pay $1,000 for rent or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Wow, dude. What a fucking life. <laughs> How old were you? Early at this, 20s? At this point. When early you, when 20s? a $20,000 $20, order, early 20s? Yeah, I was about 25. 24, 25. Okay. 